Good to see everyone tonight. Um, boy, I'm going to miss this. This has been fun. I've enjoyed my February coming to Hillside, my favorite, second favorite church, I have to say that. Yeah. That was not recorded. For the record, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah send, it, send it to Mark, yeah. Um, just before we get started tonight, um, just a, a couple things, just before we, we jump in. Uh, one is I wanted to uh, give you the heads up, and uh, Derwin gave me permission to, uh, to shamelessly advertise something's going on at our church. Uh, we have on April 9th uh, a conference with uh, Rick Watts, who's a New Testament scholar from uh, Regent College. If you know him, Rick, you will not fall asleep when he speaks. He's from Australia. Yeah, he's from Australia. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, some, there's some nice people that come from Australia. <laughs> like, for example. Uh, so the conference is called It's About Life. Though, because he's Australian, we're going to call it It's About Life. Um, but we're not sure how to spell that. But the whole point of uh, the conference is, uh, and I've heard Rick do this before, he walks through um, all the key themes of the Bible, from creation to the meaning of Israel to Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and uh, end times. He does it all in one day, and it is fantastic. I have heard it before, and if you're looking for just a really solid grounding and a reminder of the key themes of Scripture and how they all fit together, man, this is an amazing conference. Uh, like this is an amazing talk that he does. So we have Rick coming to our church on uh, at Coquitlam Alliance Church on April 9th. And I asked Derwin if we could invite you all to come, and hopefully you can come. It's uh, lunch. It's not expensive or anything, and it's, uh, it's coming up. So I just want to give you the heads up on that one. Second thing is um, the, the administration in this church is just phenomenal um, because I sent my notes in yesterday. And they made some changes. And so I called and I said, have you printed off? And they said, it's been printed, it's been stapled, and it's been piled. So when you're going through your notes tonight, what I did is I actually tried to, every time I give this talk, I try to tweak it a little bit, change a few things. And right now I'm teaching a 12-week um, a course at a local um, Bible college on science and faith. And so um, I do a three-and-a-half-hour lecture every week on science and faith. And then Tuesday nights at our church, I'm doing a 10-week series on science and faith. And so it's on my radar a lot these days. So I'm always tweaking the notes and, and changing things up. So as you're going through the notes, you'll notice a few places where it doesn't quite fit. And so that's where pens come in handy. So you can just add whatever you like uh, when it doesn't seem to be following along. For the most part, it will follow along, but there's a couple places where I jump around and I add a few parts, okay? So I'm just giving you the heads up if you're like, where, where are you? You've been forewarned. I'm going to jump around a little bit. And uh, finally, I thought I would read Colossians chapter 1 just to uh, situate our time tonight. Paul writes this about Jesus Christ. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord Jesus, this is about you. And uh, all things hold together in you. Our lives only work in you. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us tonight. May what we go through tonight not simply be information, not simply be you know, a talk about science and faith, but may what we go through tonight, may, um, may we offer to you our minds and our hearts as an act of worship. So we pray that you'd speak to us, challenge us, and grant us the courage to respond to whatever you say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so our topic tonight is science and faith. Do I have to choose? Now, I wanted to just begin by asking you a question. And again, if you can just get in groups of two or three. But uh, here's a question. How, do you, how did you like science in school? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Uh, did, were you bored by it? And secondly, what are the stories that we hear in our world today about the relationship between science and faith? Okay, what are kind of the stories? How is it usually portrayed either in the news or in the media, uh, the relationship between science and faith? So very quickly, just share with each other, I loved science, I hated science, whatever, I was bored by science, and then talk about you know, a couple of the ways science and faith are portrayed in the world today. Okay, so go, just break into your groups, groups of two or three. Testing, testing. One, two, three. Yeah? You'll turn that one off? <laughs> that one's off? Okay, maybe uh, one more minute. All right, let's, uh, let's gather in. How many of you loved science in high school? Let's see those hands. 
Wow, how many of you love science in university? I'm impressed. Very good. Um, okay, now in our culture today, what are some of the stories about science and faith? How is science and faith usually de depicted in our world today? What are the stories that surround it? Okay, so they're opposite, yeah? So it's either faith or science. Yeah, you can't be both. Good. Very good, yes. Yeah, the obstacle to the free reign of science is those religious folk and their narrow-minded, anti-science, anti-intellectual ideas. Yeah, and sometimes that may be the case. Yeah, anything else? Those are pretty much the main stories that are coming out. And that's one of the questions we're going to look at tonight. It's, a, it's a kind of the framing question. And it's namely, is science and faith, are science and faith enemies? And some people would say yes. I mean, listen to what Peter Atkins says, the Oxford chemistry professor. He says, humanity, thanks, humanity should accept that science has eliminated the justification for believing in cosmic purpose. And that any survival of purpose is inspired only by sentiment. Okay? So it's just kind of like a hangover from the olden days. Richard Dawkins, who never pulls his punches, he says, it's fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity posed by the AIDS virus, mad cow disease, and many others. But I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Yeah. Faith, being belief that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of every religion. So there's, there's people out there that say, yes, it is faith that's getting in the way of science. And the sooner we can get rid of faith, the better off we will be. But hang on. There's other people here. Sir John Houghton. Our science is God's science. He holds a responsibility for the whole scientific story. The remarkable order, consistency, reliability, and fascinating complexity found in the scientific description of the universe are reflections of the order, consistency, reliability, and complexity of God's activity. John McMurray, uh, I don't have that, oh, it might be in your notes. Science is a legitimate child of a great religious movement, and its genealogy goes back to Jesus. And C.S. Lewis Men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. So, we got two different stories going on here, two different perspectives. One of the questions I want to ask, and this is, again, in your notes. It may jump around a little bit, but uh, try to, uh, if you're to err on one side, try to err on following the argument that I'm making rather than trying to, catch up in the notes okay one of the questions i want to ask and i think it's a very important question is why do so many people today think science and faith are enemies i think one of the reasons why is and we've talked about this over the weeks is that people don't know their history they just don't know their history and if they knew their history they would know that there's a reason why when it comes to modern science, how we understand science today, there's a reason why it really took off in the West, particularly in the West. And we're going to talk about that 
But I would say when, we, when we're looking at this whole story of science and faith and how they relate to each other, the story is usually told in four ways. There's four stories of science and Christianity, how they relate to each other. The main story you hear today is the story of conflict. And that is science and faith, they are locked in mortal battle. Only one will survive. That science and faith by their very natures are intrinsically, inherently opposite to each other. You cannot have one without the, or you cannot have one and have the other. And so guys like um, Peter Atkins, um, yeah, again, he says that, you know, science has eliminated the justification for believing in God. Um, and so a lot of people would say that, that, uh, that science is antithetical to religion. And, and that science, you know what, science and faith, they've always been at war. That's what they would say. There's all, the science and, and religion have always been at war with each other. But this is important. This is important to get, that the idea, the story, that science and faith have been in perennial conflict is a story that has its beginning in about the mid-19th century. You know that? You can actually trace where this, where this narrative that science and faith are, are locked in battle, you can actually trace where that idea begins. And it begins um, with two books in particular. And the two books are John William Draper in 1874. The, the book is called The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. A lot of people cite this book as an example of why science and faith are in opposition to each other. They cite the book without having sight of the book. Most of them have never read the book. Um, and in reality, Draper was not so much speaking up against, sci- about, against faith. He had a, a real issue with the Roman Catholic Church. If you read the book, it becomes pretty clear. Um, the other guy who's uh, written on this is a guy named Andrew Dixon White. And in 1896, he wrote a book called A History of the Warfare of Science and Theology in Christendom. And he, Andrew Dixon White was the uh, first president of Cornell University, and he wanted to develop a research university where science would hold pride of place in the school. And he saw as his biggest threat for setting up this university, setting up science in the university, he saw as his biggest threat the theology department. And so one of the reasons, we're going to talk about this in a moment, but one of the reasons for this narrative of science and faith being in in perennial conflict comes out of this um, real specific circumstances that these guys happen to be in. Um, But there's problems. There's a problem with the conflict narrative. What are the problems? Well, one, it treats science and religion as fixed, unchangeable entities. And you need to realize that how we understand science, what science is, has changed over the centuries. When you think of science as this external description of reality, that is not how science was understood until... It's only been understood that way probably in the last 300 years. Before that, science, in the early... um, um, in medieval times and, just, and even prior to medieval times, science was not understood as an external body of knowledge. Science was a way of life. Do you know that? 
The science was in, the, the, the word science was connected to how one lived one life, one's life. And there's a really interesting book that just came out that, that unpacks this and says this idea of religion and science, even the concepts are fairly new concepts. Now, this is beyond our talk tonight, but if you're interested in this, it's a really interesting book by a guy named Peter Harrison, and it's called The Territories of Science and Religion. Man, it has rocked my world, this book. It's one of the most important books I've ever read on science and religion. And so he talks about this, this understanding of science and religion being at war. Even the understanding of science and religion is a fairly recent concept. The other problem with this narrative is that um, it, it, it becomes a lens through which you see everything. <laughs> so if you say science and faith are always at war, you use that lens now to look at all relationships between science and faith, and it kind of distorts things. And it ignores the complexity of how scientific ideas were formed in the context of, of religion. Um, okay, one more book I have to tell you about. This is such a fun book. But I haven't finished it, so if it gets, so I'm not sure that it's proper all the way through, but it's, it's so interesting. It's a book called, um, the In it's, a, it's a detective novel called, uh, or a mystery novel called The Instance of the Finger Post. Has anybody ever heard of that? The author's name's Ian Pears. Okay, this is just an aside. It's, it's a great story, but the story takes place in the 1600s. And so it's right on the cusp of the scientific revolution. And so you have people who are physics, who are like doctors, early form of doctors. But they're doing, they're discovering things about the body and, and, and using new forms of medicine. But mixed into that is still a lot of superstition. Because it's just this, you know, modern science is just coming on the scene. And if ever you want to get a feel of how science kind of emerged and how it kind of remained mixed with superstition and some things were new, this book is absolutely brilliant. And it's a page turner. It's a murder mystery um, I haven't finished it, so it might get really dodgy at the end. I'm uh, just giving you the heads up, but it's, it's quite interesting in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, title is called, it's a strange title. It's called The Instance of the Finger Post. Uh, the other one was on the relationship between science and religion. Um, is by Peter Harrison, and that book is called The Territories of Science and Religion. Yeah. Okay, so... You have this one story, that of conflict, but there's also another story that needs to be told, and that's the story of cooperation. And you need to ask this question, why did modern science explode in the West? People don't always ask that question. Why did science take off in the West? The reason why modern science took off in the West and not in the East is because it was a Christian worldview that gave the very foundations for modern science. Now, let me explain that. That Christianity was the cradle in which modern science was born. Let me explain. The Christian worldview says God and his creation are separate. God makes creation. God is not creation, right? The world is not divine. The world is sacred. It's not divine. God makes a world, his creation, he makes it knowable, Right? And so I can look at a chair and not have to worry about a chair God walking away on me, right? I can look at a tree and not worry about what are they called, dryads, or you know, there being a tree spirit inside there. No. 
the world is knowable. God has made the world intelligible. God is intelligent. He's given me rational capacities to understand the world. And by looking at the world that he has created, he has revealed truths about the world. And it is this worldview, it is a Christian worldview that creates the context, the very foundations for the rise of science. That's why science takes off in the West and not in other places. That, that's a very, very important thing for, for us to realize. Um, when we look at, um, you know, the fathers of, of modern science, and I don't think there are too many mothers, there's mostly fathers, um, you know, Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, he, he, what he does is he takes a look at uh, natural philosophers. That's what scientists used to be called. He looked at natural philosophers between 1543 and 1680, and he looked at 52 active natural philosophers who made contributions to science. And of the 52, 26 were Catholic and 26 were Protestant. Um, yeah. There's hardly any skeptics among them. Some of the names you'll see here, uh, Andreas Vesalius, the father of modern anatomy, Galileo Galilei, which is fun to say, uh, father of modern astronomy, William Harvey, the father of modern medicine, William, or Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, Antony van Leeuwenhoek, father of microbiology, Isaac Newton, father of modern mechanical physics, the Lord Kelvin, father of Calvin and Hobbes, and so you go on, right? <laughs> Making sure you're paying attention. And one of the things we need to realize today is because, you know, if you look at the media, if you look at the way the story is usually told in our world today, you'd think that there'd be hardly any scientists who would be Christians. But if you look at the statistics from 1916, there was a, a question that was asked about scientists, and the question was this. Do you believe in a God who answered prayer and, and impersonal immortality? In 1916, so 100 years ago this year, 40, about 42% said they believed in God, a personal God who answered prayer. 41.5 said no, 16.7 was agnostic. In 1996, so not that long ago, 20 years ago, the same question was asked. 40% said yes, 45% said no, about 15% were agnostic. The percentages haven't changed a whole lot. The way the story's told has changed a lot, but the actual percentages haven't. So that's the second story we need to keep in mind. And that's the story of cooperation. Another story is the story of competition. Now this is just a really interesting story. One of the reasons why science and faith, especially in the 19th century, began to be a little bit at odds to the point that you have these two guys writing a story. You get T.H. Huxley, who's, who's pretty down on the church. Um, he's what is known, he's known as Darwin's bulldog. Um, what's going on in the 19th century? Why are people, you know, fighting the way they're doing? Why, is, why, why does it seem that you have these natural scientists or these scientists fighting against um, what seems to be religion? What's actually going on, it's interesting, and this is where history is just fun, is what's going on is you have two elites in society, the clergy who were actually quite involved in science in the past, fighting with these new up-and-coming scientists over office space, for lack of a better word. I mean, in, in many of the universities, especially in England, if you were um, 
studying science or if you were teaching science, only in the 19th century um, do we get the word scientist, by the way. And only in the 19th century do, could you ever make a living of being a scientist. Could you ever teach it and make a living off it? And so then the question is, oh, which, where, where, where's my office? And so typically, most universities, if you were a scientist, you were like in, down in Snape's dungeon. Like if you know Harry and Potter, you're, you're down in the middle of nowhere, and all the theologians had the nice offices. And so there became a bit of a conflict, a competition over who had the nice offices. And, uh, and, and that's part of the story. But you need to realize that you know, in the 18th century, in the 17th century, the people who were doing medicine and a lot of people who were doing science were actually clergy. Um, John Wesley has written an entire book on, on um, cures for ailments. Has anybody ever come across that? It's fun reading. It's, it's free online. I mean, he's got some great ideas, you know. I mean, some ideas make sense. He says, you know, you should stand while you read because, you know, it keeps you more alert. Good, right? He says, um, you know, talks about vegetables being important. That's good. Talks about um, if you're going bald, just, uh, you know, to rub onions on your head, which, which I'm not so sure about that one. <laughs> That's what I, uh, yeah, <laughs> and you're Wesleyan too. Um, well, he does say if you have a cold, you take um, lemons, and which sounds good, but you stick them up your nose, which I'm not so sure about that. If you have an earache, you blow smoke into a person's ear. Um, one treatment for eye infection was, and it's surprising that it didn't work, was, um, was dried dog feces. Um, yeah. So there you go. But a guy like, uh, guy like John Newton, it's interesting. John Newton, he's a guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a pastor. And when he was in Olney, he had in his, in his, in his parish, he had an electric machine. An electrical machine. So if somebody had, was an, uh, had an ailment, one of the treatments was to sh give them a bit of electricity. And so guys like John Wesley and John Newton, they had it. And they, you know, I feel better. Thanks, Reverend. Right? So if any of you aren't feeling well, Derwin, you can go talk to him afterwards. Now the final story, and I think this kind of summarizes it, is the story of complexity. It's not neat and tidy. You know, some people will talk about Galileo as, you know, conflict, and yet you have these, Galileo is a devout Christian, so it's a lot more complex than, than these, these kind of cardboard narratives that we often hear. But what I want to talk about, and this, this next section I don't think is in your notes, but I want to ask this question. Are there two worlds of science and religion, are they incompatible? And some people would just say, you know what? They are. They're just different things. And you know what? It's fine. Religion's fine. Science is fine. But it, it's best if they just keep their distance from each other, right? Religion, do your religious things on Sunday or whatever you guys do. Science, we'll do our science things and just keep separate from each other. And so there's a sense that these two worlds are incompatible and they should be kept away from each other. Peter Atkins says um, science and religion cannot be reconciled. And it does seem like a simple solution. If you ask the question, what is God like? Well, that's religion. If you ask, what is the mass of a carbon atom? That's science. And so the way to think about this is this acronym NOMA. 
which is non-overlapping magisteria. It's simple. Religion's got its section. Science has, his, his, has its section. But there's a problem. And you probably see the problem. The problem is this. Science raises religious questions. When astronomers study how vast the universe is, we begin to wonder how significant human beings are in this vast universe. Right? That's a question of meaning. When a biologist studies disease, it raises ethical questions about suffering and what is the right way to alleviate disease. Should it be, should disease or should suffering be alleviated? How is this best done? The moment you start talking about best, you're involving ethics, right? And when scientists speak of curing diseases through the use of embryonic stem cell research, that raises some ethical issues about life. Where does life begin? Is there something special about human life? Should embryonic human life be sacrificed for grown-up human life? If so, why? Right? So there's some religious questions that go with it. When scientists talk about global warming, um, it raises questions of why. Why should we care for the planet? For the survival of the species? Which species? Because I think the cockroaches will do fine. Right? So why get all bent out of shape about human beings? Are you saying there's something special about human beings compared to other animals? Why? Right? Those are important questions. Uh, when science gains the technological capacity to do something incredible, hey, we can clone people! So let's do it. What are the criteria to use to determine whether or not it should be done? So this, again, brings us into the realm of ethics. So it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple to keep them separate because a lot of science raises ethical issues. You think, yeah, I mean, you can go on about um, just with the euthanasia laws and the physician-assisted suicide and some of the issues that are coming up there. But there's a second reason why this doesn't work. And that is the concealed assumption. When people say science and religion should have nothing to do with each other, there's an implicit assumption. Here's the implicit assumption. That science deals with reality and religion deals with things like Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and God. And so you religious people do your whatever weird stuff you do and let us get and do serious work about reality but this is the real world you religious people can do your whatever purple monster you believe in or whatever all right but the third reason is the most important reason why this doesn't work and it's namely what we've said before that we believe that god is the god of the whole show and as abraham kuyper says there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. So which area of reality does Jesus not have lordship over? As Christians, we say, no, Jesus is the Lord of the whole show. And so science um, <laughs> falls within that show, right? It falls within. And so we need to have dialogue. And this is important, that neither science nor religion can claim to give a total account of reality. Um, they, both, they, they both need each other. Both science and religion are actually interested in, in making sense of things. We need to recognize that. 
But thirdly, we need to recognize that there are limits to what science can explain. Okay, now I think I'm back with your notes. Okay. We need to ask, though, what are the limits to science? Bertrand Russell, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. It's a pretty bold statement. Peter Atkins, there's no reason to suppose that science cannot deal with every, every aspect of existence. Wow. So science, is being said, well, it can explain everything. But is that true? Well, if it's true, I'll tell you, there'll be a lot of departments that are not going to be too happy. What about the philosophy department? Right? What about history department? What about literature? What about languages? Can languages be explained scientifically? What about art, aesthetics, music? Can Led Zeppelin be explained by science? Or does it transcend science? No. <laughs> are these, are, I mean, there's some departments that lie outside the explanatory power of science. So, for example, science... Science can um, explain a lot of things, but not everything. For example, science can take a poem and look at the ink and break down the chemical compounds of the ink and explain how the ink works, but can, just using scientific methods, tell me whether or not this poem is not the best poem you've ever come across. Okay? You know, sometimes I just think of these things in a moment of inspiration. I just have to write them down. But you know what? And this is key for us tonight. I would argue that belief in God goes beyond science to explain what science cannot. If, all, if we only have science then it leaves us in a deficient place to explain so many things in our world. Um, this guy here is a fellow named Thomas Nagel. Now, Thomas Nagel is interesting. He was a poster boy for neo-Darwinian materialism. <laughs> so all the neo-Darwinian materialists in university, they had posters on the wall of Thomas Nagel. Well, maybe. But... They love Thomas Nagel until Thomas Nagel wrote this book last year. I think it's two years ago now. And it's called Mind and Cosmos. And the subtitle, you can't really see it, it says, How the Neo-Darwinian Synthesis is, almost, is Most Certainly Wrong. And, and his point was this. He says, you know what, just using science, there's a lot of things we can't explain. And the one thing that really tripped him up was consciousness. How, how science can explain consciousness. Well, so he writes this book. Well, he becomes public enemy number one for the, for the um, Darwinists. And if you Google his name, this guy is dragged under every... Like, he, he's dragged through the mud after writing this book. Um, but he asks, a, he, he asks a very good question. He says, you know, can just using science explain something like consciousness? See, one of the things we need to realize is that 
when it comes to explanation, that there are many layers to explanation, are there not? So if I asked, if I asked, uh, if I asked you, why, why does a kettle boil? Can somebody give me a, an explanation why a kettle boils? You scientific type who put up your hands because you love science. Why does a kettle boil? It's plugged into the wall, and what happens? Sorry? Heat is applied to liquid water, yeah. <laughs> Keep going. What else happens? <laughs> it magically becomes gas. <laughs> okay, we're all arts majors, right? <laughs> okay, so the temperature raises a certain, to a certain point and where the, the, the water becomes gas, right? That is why the kettle boils. So why does a kettle boil? Because the heat's being applied and it turns water into gas. Got it. Why does a kettle boil? Well, angel's coming over for tea. Now, let, let, let me ask you this. Which answer is correct? They're both correct. Even it's plugged in the wall. That's another one that's, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's multiple layers of explanation. And this is really important. There's a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of explanation. And man, I'll tell you, this is, this is where you get your money's worth tonight. This, this chart is worth, worth it all. It's helped me so much. And it's a hierarchy of explanation. And I think this is just very helpful. And the rule of thumb is this. If one of those levels can sufficiently explain something, you can stop there. Okay? And you can explain a lot in the area of physics. You can explain a lot in chemistry and biology, social science, humanity. You can explain a lot. But I just want to say this. This is important. And maybe it's, it's, it's a bit of a warning to the men here. I just want to say this. That if you decide to stop at the first three levels of explanation, you can explain a lot, but you'll never get a second date. <laughs> right? You know that. Because if you come up to a woman... And you say to her, you look into her eyes and you say, random female, I could not help but notice that you're the appropriate age for childbearing and that your hips are the appropriate width for bearing a child. And I can think of no better way to propagate my genes than to be with you until a more suitable person comes along. Okay. Even if you offered flowers, I don't think it's going to help, okay? <laughs> so that's just, just so uh, th the point is simply this. If you just stay at some levels, and I remember being back uh, at, at York University. We had a TA, and we asked him about love. And he says, yeah, love is just, and he just reduced it to chemicals. We're like, really? Does your girlfriend know this? <laughs> Big surprise, he didn't have a girlfriend. Um, it was interesting, yeah. See, there's a lot of things that just using science cannot explain. For example, what about the beautiful, right? You ever think about that? I mean, sometimes it's good to have a visual. Um, this is me in grade 12. Um, and I think mullets will come back. No, maybe not. 
What is beautiful? Now you think about it. Okay, I got to move my... I'm self-conscious now. Okay. What is beautiful? Is beauty only to be understood in scientific terms? Is aesthetics described simply in scientific terms? So, you know, the Mona Lisa, what makes the Mona Lisa so beautiful? Is it, is it the chemical compounds of the paint? Or is there something more? And not only that, what about what is good? Why is there altruism, self-sacrifice for the benefit of another? Now, some biologists would say, well, you know, this goes back into, you know, hunter-gatherer times, that it, 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 if you sacrifice yourself for the good of the other, it was always understood within the concept of the tribe, and the tribe would survive better, and therefore your genes as part of the tribe would, would be propagated. So that's how you, so altruism, self-sacrifice really isn't, it's, it's just selfishness. Really? Really? Why should we not simply exploit the needy? If we had just used science and the idea of propagating one's genes, let's say in the area of biology, what does that tell us about mercy killing, abortion, and murder? Can it speak to that? A biochemist can tell me what goes into arsenic, like the, 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 the compounds that, that go into arsenic. And a biochemist can even say, you know, if ingested, it, it, it will be fatal. You will die. But just with that information, is that enough to make a decision whether or not it's right or wrong for me to put it into Angel's tea when she comes over for tea? Right? No, say, like, just dealing on the area of biochemistry, would that give you that answer? No, of course not. And, and what I'm saying to you is, is, is common sense, but we live in a culture where common sense seems to be in short supply. I mean, how do you understand, for example, not only what is beautiful, what is good, but what is true? Using science, can you tell me whether or not Napoleon existed? You can't. Using the scientific method, you can't. You can't, you, can't, you can't reproduce Napoleon. So, I mean, there's a whole sphere in history that is outside the explanatory power of science. Using science alone, can you understand information? I don't think you can. You can't understand language. These are outside the explanatory power of science. What about religion? Just the fact that the default in all of human history has been a belief in the transcendent. Is it because everyone in human history up until Richard Dawkins is stupid? Really? C.S. Lewis, Aristotle, those guys are boneheads? Or could it be the fact that every civilization, every people group throughout history has had a sense of the transcendent? Could it be a, po a pointer to the fact that maybe there is a transcendent? Now this is weird. 
just using science itself, you cannot explain the category of science. Because the category of science is not, a, is not something that can be scientifically um, explored, cannot be scientifically arrived at. The other question is, why is it that we want to study string theory or quantum mechanics? What kind of evolutionary advantage is there in me knowing quantum mechanics? Like, I can understand some basic things. You know, I should be able to, you know, make a nice car. I don't know. <laughs> I can understand how some things might give me some advantage to propagate my genes if we're going to operate on the level of biology. But in what advanced mathematics, how is that going to land me more girlfriends? Why does my mind even go into those areas? Like, why does my mind even go to having a concept of science and to talk about science tonight to you? Can that simply be explained through scientific explanation? No. It's beyond that. And again, this, this is common sense, but a lot of people don't ask these questions. I mean, one question we should ask, why should the world make any sense at all? You know, why should I trust that the world exists and is not a figment of my imagination? Why should I believe that? Have I ever told you the story of the solipsist? Have I? I had a per Okay, let me tell you what solipsism is. Solipsism is a belief, it's a philosophy that all of reality is a product of my mind. So you don't really exist except in here. Okay, it's a real philosophy. It's called solipsism. Now, the weird part is, when I was in university, I had a professor who was part of a department. The head of the department was a solipsist. And he believed that all of reality was a product of his mind. And my professor said, are you kidding me? Really? That's what he believes? Yes, that's what he believes. And so my professor was getting mad. So he started going around, ah, how could we have at the head of the department a solipsist? I can't believe that he thinks we're just a product of his mind. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is stupid. Until finally an older professor pulled him over and said, hey, easy, Turbo, slow down. Don't be causing waves in the philosophy department because you need to know one thing. If he goes, we all go. <laughs> there you go. A little philosophy joke for you this, uh, this evening. Now, one of the uh, best illustrations on this, and I'll give you one more title of a book, and a lot of these illustrations that I'm going to give to you tonight are actually drawn from his book, and it's John Lennox. Many of you may know John Lennox. He's a kind of a, a leading apologist of our day, um, professor of uh, mathematics at Oxford University. He, gives us, uh, he wrote a book called God's Undertaker, which is a very good book on, on the limits of science. But he gives a great example of Aunt Matilda's cake. So let me give you this example right now. Does anybody know who that is? Yeah. Or also known as Google Image Old Lady. Okay? <laughs> and Google Image Cake. Um, so let me tell you a story of Aunt Matilda. Aunt Matilda baked a beautiful cake, and tonight we have it with us. 
It's, she's such a good baker that she sells it at Safeway, maybe? Um, okay, she's an awesome baker, and she baked this cake. And what she did, good old Aunt Matilda, is she's invited four of the top scientists in the world over for cake. And so I need four scientists. Ah, I need four scientists. There's two here, <laughs> right? Okay, and two here. Yeah, come on up here. <laughs> you got to come up. I, got, I can make up one more. Come on up if you want. <laughs> All right, come on over. You guys think you're going to get cake, don't you? Okay, I mean, yeah, it's worth a shot. Okay, I need you to uh, face everybody. So, hey, hey, scientists, face this way. We have with us, I don't know if you realize this, the top scientists in the world. And uh, yes, yes. And so we have um, two of the, uh, the greatest physicists around. Introduce yourself and tell us about how much you love physics. Well, you've got to introduce yourself. I'm sorry. I'm Yeah. Okay. I'm Dr. Caleb Gray. Yes. He's, he's, he's an odd physicist, but uh, <laughs> no, he's very Okay, and we have with us um, one of the world's leading biochemists. And tell us your name and how much you love biochemistry. Uh, biochemistry is my life. I'm Jesse, and that's and, all I do. Okay, Jesse. and you know, that's kind of convincing. I like that. And we have one of our, 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 our leading, um, you're the biochemist. We have just our, our leading chemist. Mm-hmm. And you have to say your name and explain how much you love chemistry. Oh, well, bam. All right. I adore chemistry. You adore chemistry. I am a chemist to the core. All right. All right. And then we have with us our famous nutritionist. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so say your name and say how much you love nutrition, okay? Um, I adore it and I just love food. You just love food? Okay. So... <laughs> Very good. So what I've done, or not me, what Aunt Matilda has done, um, is they, uh, Aunt Matilda, in her kindness, has invited these top scientists over for cake. And what she's asked them to do is to look at the cake and explain the cake. Okay? So look at it. Okay, look at it. Yeah. All right. All right, now, now I need your reports. On the cake, hand them in. Okay, that's good. Good. Yeah. So I like. Yeah, I like the cover page. Okay. Thank you very much. Now I have to look at these reports for a second. Now these reports are fascinating because the physicists, you know, what they did is they looked at the cake and they broke down the cake into its elementary whatever physics do physicists do, and they it's it's so complicated. I just really like the cover page, but it's fascinating stuff about physics and, and explaining the cake. And then, then our biochemist said, you know what, let me explain the chemical compounds of this cake. And it, it was a lot of work. It was 100 pages, but it, was, it, it explained. And then added to that was just a chemical explanation of the cake, which is different, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and, and, it, and, and then we also heard from the, the, 
nutritionist who told us that there's only 50 calories in the cake, in the whole cake. So that's awesome. And, and so basically what has happened is we've got a thorough, thorough report on the cake. Is the cake fully explained? If I ask you the question, why, why did Aunt Matilda bake this cake? Would any of those reports give an answer? How in the world would they ever know why Aunt Matilda baked that cake? How would they know? You would have to ask Aunt Matilda. But more than that, Aunt Matilda would have to be willing to tell you. Right? Aunt Matilda would have to be willing to reveal to you why she baked the cake. Now, I'm going to tell you why she baked the cake. Was as a gift to me for doing all this teaching for these... No, no, no. (laughs) As, as, As a gift... To Lori to share among her friends. All right, so let's thank our scientists for coming up. <laughs> We're gonna leave it there. Okay. Now, I mean, it's a fun illustration that uh, that Lennox gives because it raises profound questions. And the questions are: you probably guessed them already. Does someone stand in relation to the universe as Aunt Matilda does with the cake? And if so, has he revealed anything? From a Christian perspective, we believe God is a God who reveals to us. He's a revealing God. And so science can get us so far, but ultimately we need for us to know, we need God to reveal himself to us. Okay? Now, there's going to be some objections along the way, and these are some of the objections that I've heard just as as I've been teaching on this stuff. And one of the objections I often hear is this. You know, why are you bringing God into the equation? We can do science without God. And bringing God into the equation is just complicating things. You don't need God. But there's a problem with logic here. Now, let me give you an example. This is a Ford, an early Ford motor car. Okay, let's say you don't know what it is. You stumble across this contraption. You don't know what it is. And and you look at it, and and there looks like there's a porthole or something like that, and you get inside it, and you're kind of touching a bunch of things. You're not sure what's going on. You're told it's a Ford. That's all. You're told that Mr. Ford made this, and you have no idea what this Ford is or anything. So you're just kind of touching and touching, and all of a sudden, no, 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 Oh, oh, that's amazing. You know what? I bet you the spirit of Ford has been awoken. Oh, that's amazing. And so next time you come, you bring a bowl of fruit and you put it on the dash and you say, oh, great Ford, again, respond. And you touch a bunch of things and no, 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 no. It's like, oh, hey. It's this, and, then, and then finally somebody comes along, I hate to break it to you, there's no... There's no spirit inside this car or anything. It, let me explain to you how an in, internal combustion engine work, uh, works. This is actually called a car. And this is how it works. And you, you know, turn the ignition. That's what you accidentally bumped. And, and this, is, this is what it's for. And you're like, oh, that's what it is. Oh. So I guess it's a logical conclusion then that Mr. Ford does not exist. 
No. That would be making a very important mistake. And what, is, what you're doing is you're confusing two things. You're confusing agency and mechanism. Agency and mechanism. So the source and how something works. So simply because you know how something works does not mean that there's no inventor or founder behind it. In fact, if you knew something about Mr. Ford, knowing something about Mr. Ford would actually help you understand a little bit about what this motor car is all about, about why he created it, what it's for, what is its purpose, right? Because Mr. Ford, if he reveals this, that's going to help you understand things even more. And so whenever somebody says, well, you know, we can understand things just fine without bringing God into the equation, you want to just stop them in their tracks and say, look, don't confuse agency with mechanism. Yes, we can understand how things work, for sure. But would it not enhance our understanding if we knew the purpose for this world? Yes, we can understand biologically how the body works. But what if we understood why we exist and what is the meaning of being a human being? Would that not help things even more? And so, to bring God into the equation, in fact, just makes things a lot more interesting and helps us to understand things even better. It doesn't take away at all. Sometimes I, I've read an article uh, that says, you know, it's only a matter of time before science discovers enough that will explain away God. Don't fall for that, because what, what this person has done, this person's not making a scientific statement. They're making a philosophical statement. They're talking about metaphysics. They're talking about the nature of all reality. Well, that's beyond science, right? Some people would say, well, bringing God into the equation is more complex than the thing we're explaining, so bringing God in isn't really helpful. It's not an explanation at all. And I like John Lennox was talking with uh, Richard Dawkins, and John Lennox, uh, he's Irish, right? And he says, Oh, Mr. Dawkins, can I ask you a question? Is that your book? And Dawkins, yeah, yeah, that's my book. It's called God Delusion, is it? Yeah. And you wrote it? Yeah. Well, aren't you more complex than your book? 